Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Everyone who was in that room was a shareholder and a coworker. Mm-hmm. After the transaction, of course, they weren't shareholders, but they were still coworkers. And so you were picking, it's in some sense, you were picking your, your future employer yeah. as well. And so that was... That was a really important part of it, but it was, I mean, to answer your question succinctly, it was not just words, it was actions that we wanted to see that verified people's commitments to these things. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my medicated co-host, Rodney Evans. <laughs> hey, everybody. We are also joined today by Steve Fetchheimer, the CEO of New Belgium Brewing. I'm sure many of you know them. And that's one of the country's most popular and fast-growing craft brewers. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Really happy to be here today. On uh, today's episode, we're going to talk about how human-centric orgs stay human over time, over the long haul. But before we get into that, we are going to take a little time for a check-in. We are. So as we always do on this show, with or without guests, we unfailingly do a check-in round. And the question for today is, what is something that you have recently learned about yourself? (laughs) And I'm going to start, as Aaron alluded to, I have just, just freshly returned from vacation and learned during that vacation that I have a penicillin allergy that I was not aware of and Mm. is very unpleasant, but also better to learn that fact in a situation where it doesn't kill you than one where it does. So now I know, and I'm probably going to get a fancy bracelet out of it uh, for future EMTs. Thank you very much. Aaron, what about you? What have you learned about yourself recently? I have learned that I am too critical. Mm. I, my son has pointed this out to me. Children will teach you. And sometimes I get frustrated with things not being perfect And there's a lot of context about that, but he doesn't see that. He just sees like, oh, if things aren't perfect, then you're an idiot. Mm. And so I I have like really decided to walk that back. And I'm going to have like a new safe word for when I'm being critical. I love that. Are we going to get to hear that safe word? Because I'm not sure that this stays at home completely. (laughs) Yeah, the, the, the safe word at home at least is curious. Oh, okay, great. Let Hux know that I appreciate that, and I will be using it maybe later today. Perfect. Steve, what about you? What have you learned about yourself? I think also, like like Aaron from my kids, they can teach you a lot of things. My son recently convinced me to start playing some video games again. I hadn't Mm. done that in a long time. He's big into his Nintendo Switch and wanted me to start playing with him. So I realized that even uh, at 44, you can get back into video games and have some fun, especially if you're doing it with your son. So we've been having a lot of fun doing that the past couple of weekends. 
Wow, cool. All right. Well, let's let's shift gears from there into today's topic, which is sustaining these human-centric orgs over decades. And we wanted to start by asking you what brought you to New Belgium. And you know, you joined the company five years ago in 2017. What were you getting up to before then? And what what attracted you to this opportunity? Yeah. So before I joined New Belgium, I joined in August of 2017. So before I joined, I was with a bigger spirits company. Beam Centauri is the name of the company, but no, it's brands like Jim Beam and Maker's Mark and Salsa Tequila, but a large spirits company. And I actually got the call from New Belgium. I think it's one of the unique things maybe we'll talk about as, as we get a little bit deeper into the culture, but I didn't get a call from a headhunter. I actually got a call from the recruiting department at New Belgium as they were looking for, as the company was looking for a new CEO. And like any of those things, you go back and forth for a while. But I think when it, when it really came down to it for me, I joined because one, I thought I could help. I thought some of the problems that the business was facing and some of the opportunities that the business had really fit well with the experience that I was having at uh, my current employer. But then I think more importantly, I wanted to help. And I looked at the business model that Kim Jordan had set up here, and she had done that with her, with the business co-founder, her then husband, Jeff Liebisch, the business model they'd created at New Belgium was something that I found just really personally appealing, and I wanted to be a part of it. And so when I put those two things together, it was, it was somewhere I thought I could be helpful from an experience perspective with, hey, this is a place I actually want to be. And by the way, we make beer and it's in Colorado. It's got a bunch of other great attributes to go with it. It just seemed like a perfect fit for me. That's awesome. So for anyone who lives under a rock and does not know about New Belgium, tell us a little bit about the history, about the origin story. Can you talk to us about New Belgium's founding and why y'all have focused so explicitly on human-powered business practices really right from the beginning? So the... The founding of New Belgium really dates back to the late 80s when Jeff Liebisch actually took a bike ride through Belgium. He was over there for some other sort of work needs for his job at the time, was a home brewer, uh, was a huge fan of beer, and spent some of his time there just biking around from brewery to brewery and learning about Belgian-style beers, learning about how they were made. And he just found that really intriguing and really interesting because it was so different than what was offered in the U.S. beer market at the time, right? We're going back, you know, 35-ish years now at this point. And so it's a very different beer market here in the U.S. And he brought that back and he worked with his wife, Kim Jordan, uh, around trying to build and start this new business, right? And so New Belgium, because mm-hmm. at the time he was in Belgium learning about all these different Belgian style beers and he was inspired by all of that. But I think what really caused this to be embedded in the culture and in the DNA of New Belgium was something that Kim and Jeff did before they even brewed their first beer. They actually went on a hike in Rocky Mountain National Park, which isn't far from us here in our uh, hometown of Fort Collins, Colorado. And they really, at that time, set up four key values that they wanted as part of the company's DNA if they were going to sort of embark on this new adventure together. And, and the four things they decided at the time, and they, and they morphed a bit over time, but that they, they decided then were important to them was one, creating world-class beer. Mm-hmm. If you're going to start, if you're going to start a business, we're going to need to be. Why not? Right. Great place to start. And by the way, 
fairly audacious goal. They never even brewed beer, right? So <laughs> you're starting with, I want to make world-class beer when I haven't made beer or certainly haven't made beer at, at a commercial scale. That's a pretty awesome place to start. They wanted to promote the culture of beer because again, the, the beer industry then, the beer culture in the US wasn't like it is now. There weren't thousands of craft breweries all around the country. And so there was a real opportunity to build up a, a beer culture in the US. And then when you really get into the business model things, the last two that 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 were really important to them, even at the time, was you know, one was being responsible environmental stewards. And mm-hmm. so that's been embedded in the company from before they brewed their first beer. And then the fourth one was having fun. And if they were going to start this new business, if they're going to go on this adventure together, having fun was a really important part of that. And I think as we get into the conversation a bit more today, particularly those last two, being responsible environmental stewards and having fun being part of the company's goals from day one, I think has really shaped the direction of, of the business over the past 30 so years. That is such a nice combination too. I mean, if you think about how early it was to be thinking about those things, I am impressed, right? I mean, there are, there are plenty of people who are just getting around to the environment now, maybe forgot to have fun for the past 20 or 30 years. When we, when we zoom into the concept of human-powered how do we define that? What does that look like for, for New Belgium? How, how do people talk about that and, and live that? So before becoming uh, a co-founder of a craft brewery, Kim Jordan was a social worker. And so as they really thought about how to set up this business, Interesting. having Kim really lead a conversation or, or lead thinking around, well, how do we put people at the center of this was quite logical because that's really who she was as a person before she became uh, before she became a brewer, before she became a co-founder of New Belgium. And so we we really talk about it now. And of course, language has morphed over 30 years and, and some of these things have, have probably changed a, a little bit. But we talk about it now as really putting coworkers and our communities at the center of everything we do. Okay. So when we talk about being human powered, right, that's that's the core philosophy. And we we really believe that Doing that, putting coworkers and communities at the center of everything, actually leads to the most successful business in the long term, and it's the the best place to work. It does create world class beer. It is you know an economically viable and responsible business that actually does all of those other things that people talk about wanting to happen at their businesses. But we've just sort of reversed what we think is the priority in making those things happen. That's awesome. So I am curious. It sounds like, you know, you joined New Belgium well into the journey, right? It sounds like a lot of the operating system of the company was well established and a lot of these principles were really already baked in. So as a relatively recent, you know, joiner or someone who came a little bit later, what was the like unlearning that you had to do when you came aboard? Was there anything that you were sort of holding in terms of personal assumption from your past experience that didn't work really well when you came aboard at New Belgium and and that you had to kind of shift your mindset around? I think there's probably uh, a business model answer to that question. And then there's also maybe a little bit of a personal answer to that question. Cool. I think, you know, from, from a business model perspective, I'd sort of been trained, if you will, or experienced sort of a shareholder supremacy philosophy, right? Mm-hmm. If we solve for, we solve for shareholders first, then everything else takes care of itself. Sure. And as I said before, this, this model, this human power business almost flips that on its, <laughs> totally. on its head. And it starts with talking about coworkers and communities. And, and I actually really believe that to be true even b- before I came here. And, and I saw it working so well with New Belgium that, that I actually wanted to be a part of that. And I wanted to be able to 
continue to prove that this model made sense and, and was something that businesses could adopt and businesses could be really successful with. But when I came in as a leader here, you still have to actually get into the nuts and bolts of running the company. Sure. And so you, you actually have to assess yourself as a leader. I hadn't been the CEO at Beam, but I was offered the opportunity to be the CEO here. So I'd obviously you know, led big projects and led big teams and done all those things. But when you come in as the CEO, you, you pretty quickly appreciate that as you're um, changing things within the company, people will react very quickly to that. And I always think of myself as a caretaker of this business. I won't be here forever, unfortunately, right? At, at New Belgium, leadership teams, you know, no matter how long you're here, there's some time frame associated with that. And this is really Kim and Jeff's dream. And this is a business that's been built by people who've been at New Belgium for a long time. And so I had to step in and think about, well, how, how are you a caretaker for this business model? And yes, we want to continue to improve it and do new things and explore new ways and push the boundaries of this business model. But I also want to stay really true to who the brand and the company is and what was set out as those sort of original four core values and, and build on those. And so okay. you got to get that balance right of like, hey, I'm the new guy and I have a few ideas, but also this is the, the core culture of the company. And if we can continue to feed that and grow that and make that better, it's going to help the company over time. Yeah, I love I love what you were hinting at there about the need to kind of prove and protect this idea of, of an employee centric organization and, and, you know, just thinking about stakeholders other than a shareholder supremacy view. Cause I think we feel that too. There's a, there's a sense of like defending an idea and caretaking a, an idea in culture that is pretty well not regarded by the vast majority of businesses. So, so that really, that really speaks to me along those lines, I guess, digging a little deeper into the employee experience on the website itself, it says we encourage people to take risks push boundaries and let their freak flags fly because ideas that change the world rarely come from a textbook or follow a straight line. And that's hella fun, which is, which sounds very Fort Collins. That's not something you would typically see on, on a corporate website. How does that statement translate into on the ground practice? What sorts of things would you see if you were shooting a movie at New Belgium that, that kind of align with that, that maybe you wouldn't see somewhere else? I think I'd probably start with the hella fun part of that <laughs> in, ter in, ter in terms of an answer. The culture here, I think, is very different than other places I've worked. And part of that is, hey, it's Fort Collins, and there's a culture that comes with Fort Collins, although we obviously now have uh, a great brewery and a great set of coworkers in Asheville, North Carolina, which in many ways was, was chosen because of a lot of the cultural similarities between Asheville uh, and Fort Collins. Hell yeah, the People's yeah. Republic of Asheville represent. <laughs> <laughs> Right. That's a place where, you know, our business model can be successful. And, and we recently partnered up with the Bells Brewery out of Michigan, who shares a lot of those same cultural attributes. But the I, I was actually thinking about this yesterday. You know, we've been we're coming into spring here, although the weather's a little touch and go. And we we're obviously coming out of two years of the pandemic where there's been more work from home. And it was great yesterday, beautiful, sunshiny day to see just co-workers interacting with each other at, we call it the LC, the Liquid Center. It's our tap room here. People hanging out there having beers. I saw people having their one-on-one -on -one meetings with their managers outside on the front lawn. Uh, we're preparing for you know some music and bands at the brewery today and over the weekend. So you're starting to kind of see that culture come back. 
and see people want to be engaged in that. And it's just it's, it, it's just a different vibe when you're here. It's Thursday night. It's a beautiful night. So there'll be a lot of beach volleyball. Um, we have two sand volleyball courts. I guess you say sand volleyball, not beach volleyball. But <laughs> two, beach in quotes. Two, there's a yeah, beach in quotes, sand volleyball. There's two sand volleyball courts out uh, sort of behind our packaging. And even in the middle of the winter, there's people playing every Thursday night. So so you you get people who actually want to be here. And that goes back to the comment I made at the start of this, just around New Belgium actually calling me from a recruiting perspective, even for the CEO, not not having a search firm do it. Because you also want people who want to be part of a culture like this and value those kinds of things. And that doesn't work for everyone, right? There are some people who want to come in, do their job, and bail out at the end of the day. And that's okay too, right? There's a lot of reasons that may be the, the thing that makes the most sense for someone at, at any given point in, in, you know, in their personal lives. But you have people here who are really invested, I think, in, in the culture, in having fun at work, in participating in some of those things. And I think that just builds a more engaged and, and cohesive workforce over time. And, you know, we are getting a million questions right now from companies all over about return to work policy and hybrid work and what we're seeing and how that's being handled. And as I said, I'm just back from vacation and I read a corporate communication today about return to work that was like truly vomit worthy. And so I'm just (laughs) curious when you like for New Belgium, is the philosophy basically come for the vibes, come if you want? Like, how are you guys handling the balance of attracting people back, nudging people back, insisting, giving total flexibility and agency? Like, how are y'all thinking about this post, post-ish, if we can call it post-pandemic moment? I don't think we've made a final decision on cool. it. Like, like many companies, maybe if you go back 12 months, I think we felt really good about how we were going to handle things. And mm-hmm. we talked about more of a, we called it our homecoming plan, more of, <laughs> right? More of a, a, of a, a return to work last summer. And we were going to change, materially change some expectations for people as part of that. So we were, we had talked about maybe moving to three days in the office instead of five, giving people some options. A lot of the, a lot of the traditional things, maybe not traditional, a lot of the common things that you're hearing out there, the companies are doing and, and shifting that schedule. And then, of course, with Delta, right, yeah. we never really enacted that plan, Yeah. even though we had talked about it. And right now, I'm in the brewery today. I'd say office workers, maybe a third of the office workers are in. Of course, we have lots of amazing coworkers who are here every day because they're brewing beer, packaging beer, shipping beer, right? And so there's things you have to be in the office or you have to be at the sure. brewery, I should say, not in the office. You have to be at the brewery to do every day or we can't function as a company. And, and we've been incredibly grateful to that group of coworkers for the past two plus years, driving the volume, right? Driving the business uh, every single day as, as part of that. But I don't think we made any formal decisions. I have noticed maybe more anecdotally that there's more people coming in every single day. And, it, and, and, and so the weeks go by, it's just starting to get a little bit busier. We've turned and opened our tap rooms, which again, that's you know for, for consumers to come in and grab a beer here. That's just, we just opened that seven days a week. We've been on a limited schedule for a while as well. So that's another reason for people to come back. So we're, we're, we're getting there, but it's, it hasn't been by edict, if you will. So folks, we're about to get into the really juicy bits of the new Belgium story. But before we do that, I just want to do the once an episode shout out. If you're liking what you're hearing, take this episode, grab the link, drop it in Slack, send it to a friend. 
let them know about it. That's how we grow the community and that's how we move these ideas through culture. So we'd really appreciate that. If you have time today, share it with someone you love. So I have to say, Steve, the way the company really came on our radar, because this this show is extremely interested in new ways of working, more human ways of working. What does the future of work look like that's more you know fulfilling and, and soulful than what we have in, in the status quo? And and New Belgium really came across the the transom when news of the acquisition happened, because as we know, in in two thousand, it became the first craft brewery to set up an employee stock ownership plan. And then you fast forward a couple decades, and the company does get acquired. What were you thinking about in that moment? How did the org navigate it? What were some of the trade offs that were involved in that? Concerns, conversations. Just what was the overall kind of strategy and climate around that moment? So I think it's probably important to start with, there was a, a drumbeat from shareholders who were our coworkers, right? Around wanting to think about alternative ownership structures for the business. And if you think about a company that's been, there's about, we were about 30 years old at the time. We weren't quite there at the time, although we are now. And you think about a company that's had an, really an ESOP in place in some way, shape, or form, almost since Kim and Jeff started the business, but sort of formally through an ERISA-sponsored ESOP plan for about 20 years. You're actually, we were getting to a point where we had a lot of coworkers who, one, had a lot of value mm-hmm. tied up in the ESOP, a lot of their personal net worth. And two, we're also sort of approaching retirement age. And it's quite logical for people to want to think about, well, how do I how do I monetize that, and and how do I feel secure as I as I move towards retirement? I've said before, many people have heard me say, right, all balance sheets sort of have finite life cycle associated with them, and that sort of felt like the time for us to give some thought to how do we monetize the amazing benefits of the ESOP for so many of our coworkers, and we've said publicly. You know, over 300 coworkers got six-figure checks out of the transaction, and many got significantly larger checks than that. And and so that was the right time, I think, for us to do that as as a company. But what was cool about it, or maybe what was unique about it, I should say, was because we were a B Corp in the state of Colorado, and that's how we were registered. We we had I was a board member at the time, as well as being CEO. We had an opportunity to think about the transaction in a way that wasn't only about the shareholder value that was being driven by that. It wasn't only about the share price. And so we actually had seven criteria as a board as we went through the process that was important for us to understand. And of course, share value was one of those criteria and it was very important as we went through that process. But we could also think about would the acquiring company support us continuing on as a B Corp? And that was really critical to us. Would they value our breweries and our coworkers and keep all those jobs and, and keep both of our breweries open? And was that you know, part of the strategy? Would they support some of our broader business model things? And whether it's you know our on-site health clinic or the way we think about 401k matching or any of those other benefits that we go through, would they value all of those things? Would they see that putting coworkers and communities at the center of the business model actually did make sense. Would they support that? Mm-hmm. And so that to us was a really critical part of the process and meant that there were certain people who maybe were interested in 
Fat Tire as a brand for their business or Voodoo Ranger as a brand for their business might not have been great fits for us from an acquisition perspective because they didn't share those core values. And, And so I felt very fortunate as a relatively new CEO in the business to be able to consider all of those other variables as part of the process. And I think that's something that's really important for you know, other CEOs, other boards to be able to think about as they go through this. It's, it's just a huge advantage of being a B Corp that you can really consider all of those other stakeholders as you go through the process and you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to be a fiduciary only as you think about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. It sounds like you were really thinking about protecting the OS at the end of the day, right? All those things that, that make it unique. Well, we thought that's what, that's what made New Belgium, New Belgium. Mm-hmm. And so why would you sell a business to somebody who doesn't value what you value as, as part of that. And so, yeah, we, we, I mean, we really did have seven things sort of on the score sheet that we looked at as areas that we thought about as we talked to different potential acquirers of the business. It's so interesting. I want to just dig into that a little bit because um, I, I have been around a couple of acquisitions in the past where you know, one of the companies, usually the target company, had a much stronger or particular culture that it was trying to protect that had made it very attractive in some way. And then through this process, um, sort of convinced itself that it could somehow maintain that even though the signals were strong that it maybe couldn't. I'm just curious, like as as you were sort of navigating that, what kinds of things did you listen for in terms of whether people were full of shit when you were really talking about values and the ethos of the company and and where you thought you could really maintain this very special thing that had been created? I'm personally not a big believer in in words mm. on something like that, mm-hmm. because, right? Anyone could say whatever they want during an M&A process. We were really looking for actions that demonstrated support for the words that we were hearing from potential acquirers. And so, you know, Little World Beverage, which is which is part of uh, Lion, a bigger Australian company, has a lot of the same environmental commitments that we have, has a lot of the same pay equity commitments that we've made to our coworkers. And these these are things that they're out there talking about very publicly and they're taking action on very concretely within their own businesses. And so you can see, you could sort of see the cultural alignment. We actually presented to our coworkers, to our shareholders as part of the transaction. We actually took their sort of core values and beliefs. They they used a slightly different terminology than we did. But you could actually almost put them right next to ours and we actually drew lines and we said this mm-hmm. this sort of is it equates to how New Belgium talks about it and this one equates to this part of how New Belgium talks about it and here's some proof points for what they do against these things mm-hmm. so that we can know that it's not just words on a page but there are real actions that support it and that's why we think this makes sense culturally because everyone who is in that room was a was a shareholder and a coworker mm-hmm. After the transaction, of course, they weren't shareholders, but they were still coworkers. And so mm-hmm. you were picking, in some sense, you were picking your your future yeah. employer as well. And so that was that was a really important part of it. But it was, I mean, to answer your question succinctly, it was not just words, it was actions that we wanted to see that verified people's commitments to these things. So speaking of actions, most of us have experienced quite a bit of supply chain chaos over the last year, two years, month. And wildly, New Belgium was making deliveries with like a 99% on time rating in the last year. 
we're pretty curious what connection you see between the way the organization works culturally and how it's been navigating all this uncertainty, frankly, throughout the pandemic, Not maybe not just within the supply chain, but overall. So first of all, I feel like I need to knock on wood before I try to answer that. Because <laughs> if, this, if this jinx us, I'm going to hear from our supply chain team how I screwed everything up with this podcast. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a couple of, of things that have, have led us to that success. I think one, just from a business model perspective, when you actually care about your coworkers, you care about the people who are at the company, I think it gives it gives them a reason to care about the company as well and we had an opportunity in front of us frankly we we, we had a need in front of us to continue to, to make it sell beer because that's how we make payroll right and that's how we can take care of uh, everyone who's who's part of this new belgian community so we had these engaged co-workers who did really care about the success of the business and were willing to figure out how to kind of work through some of those complexities but i think more it maybe if that's sort of a, a basic requirement, one of the things we also do here is is we really have empowered coworkers. Mm-hmm. So I can't possibly have every single procurement decision or supply supply chain decision come up to me, or frankly even to Joe Davis who runs our supply chain team. Right, we just aren't capable of making all those decisions on the fly, especially in times of uncertainty. And so when we have a coworker group who's really engaged in the business. We've shared financials with them. They understand how the business operates. They understand how we make money. They understand what priorities are. They understand how different brands are performing in the marketplace. And so if we need to make trade-offs on what are we going to package on any given day, they actually sort of know what's working in the marketplace and, and where we should put those priorities. All those things allow decisions to be made much more quickly and much mm-hmm. more accurately at different levels of the organization. And you might see it. So I think that that allowed us to be really nimble in the decision-making process, which helped us certainly helps you more in times of uncertainty. If we know, obviously, if we know we're going to sell 100 cases of this every month and 50 cases of this and 25 cases, that never changes. That's not hard to do. But when those things are are moving wildly, having people empowered to make decisions quickly and, and change priorities, I think, is really helpful. And then I think the last thing, just from a business model perspective, we don't talk about them as as stakeholders as much so far at least on this podcast but is our suppliers and they're important stakeholders in this as well and of course you know as as we think about our relationship with suppliers the cost matters right we can't pay too much for cans or malts or anything else right for our business we need to get a fair deal but we also want our suppliers to be able to value the relationship with us and see value in, in that ongoing relationship and have some profitability for them to pay their coworkers and make their environmental commitments and do all those kinds of things as well. So when you have a, a relationship with your suppliers, where you think of them a little bit more like stakeholders and a little bit less just like a supplier and, and where you choose only a price, I think that probably helps you on the margin when you get into tough times and really need people to think about prioritizing New Belgium and making sure that we get the things that we need as part of that because we've been good partners for yeah. them for a long time and we we plan to be going forward for a long time as well. Yeah. It's such a it's such a cool point that you make. I feel like in a lot of companies that I've worked in and around the relationship with people who are seen as like vendors or external whatever is often so transactional and it's extractive. And and it's just like when the shit hits the fan, don't you want to have like 
agility and flexibility and some <laughs> level of loyalty and some level of connection. Like that's just what makes these things function. So I think it's really cool to hear you talk about that as, you know, the relationship between these folks who are sort of arbitrarily outside of the membrane of your organization, but are actually totally necessary to the operating of your organization, be treated like partners. And then for that to show up in the moment where you really need that partnership. It is a different way to think about it. And it and it's probably fair that in 95% of the situations, if you if you think of a supplier or a vendor in your language as just that a supplier and a vendor, it's probably okay. It, mm. You know, you, you can probably for your own business at least, right? You, you can probably get get through some of those difficult times. But knowing, just like when we talked about coworkers, right, and having an engaged team, empower people who can make decisions, that really matters when things are difficult. That really matters when things are 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 complicated. And the same thing with that supplier relationship. Having a real relationship there helps you when things are complicated or difficult, yeah. and and that's when those things really matter. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I want to talk more about sort of that that adaptability, but it's interesting because, you know, obviously for for where Aaron and I say, we are often the vendor or the supplier or the partner. And and the idea that the clients who treat us as such don't get treated better uh would be silly. You know, that the clients who treat you as as a partner and as someone strategic and <laughs> as folks who are important to their business, you know, get that back in good times and in in challenging ones. Um, I want to just dig in a little bit more to some of the like adaptability that that New Belgium has seen. One of the things that we heard about was that in the pandemic's early days, folks within the company whose jobs didn't directly involve the making and shipping of beer, like quote unquote, paused their normal tasks and and the company found other work for them to focus on. Can you just talk us through like how that went down? Did you all have some sort of process for shuffling people around or was that something you found your way to in this situation? So I think just for for clarification purposes for some of your listeners, the 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 rules we really paused were our taproom rules. Okay. Like every bar, every bar and restaurant pretty much sure. closed at the time, and we have a really big uh, taproom business here in Fort Collins and, and in Asheville as well. It's probably forty to fifty coworkers uh, across those sites at the time, and I, it's interesting how the whole business model sort of hangs together here and and there's a little bit of good luck right and the, and then there's a little bit of well maybe we deserve some good luck because of some of the decisions <laughs> we made but our ability to continue to make and ship beer when people were struggling with that and our coworkers especially our operations supply chain coworkers dedication to that work and hitting those 99% sort of order numbers also meant that we we had some flexibility. We had a moment where we could pause and assess and figure out what do we want to do for the rest of the coworkers who are yeah. part of the business, and 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 so and so how do we handle that really difficult decision? And we were actually the first people to close the tap to close our tap rooms in Colorado, and so that part of the decision was easy. But then you say, well, well what do you want to do? And you know, the first thing says, hey, go home, stay safe. We're going to pay you. Let us figure this out. But because we were able to ship continue to ship and be successful from a business perspective, we could take a moment to assess that. What we realized really quickly was actually there's a lot of places where now we need more help because Mm -hmm. maybe things don't operate quite as smoothly during, especially those early days of the pandemic, right? We changed shift schedules and how shift overlap works. And we want to be able to spread people out more in their operations role. So maybe we need a few more people on shift. And so we actually said, look, we've got 
really great dedicated coworkers who can do all kinds of other things at the brewery as well. And so let's find roles and let's find ways for everyone to be helpful during this time. And so, you know, whether that was moving some people into brewing or moving people into packaging, we had a person who I uh, was working in our tap rooms who used to be a lawyer and he came back and, and joined the legal team That's awesome. and helped out there. And so you're finding out Amazing. sometimes that these people have all these other wonderful experiences and capabilities and might not have been what they came to join you for, but as yeah. part of their career path or, or, or part of their life plan, it's like, great, we, we can actually kind of tap into that and, and find roles and opportunities for people. And a lot of those people who moved into other career paths within New Belgium, when we turned around and opened our tap rooms again, actually stayed in those other career paths. They, mm. you know, they want their new teams and they're excited about the, the career growth and opportunity they have there. And then some also came back to the tap room. They said, that's my real passion. I love to be, you know, I, I, I love to be on the hospitality side of the business. I love to interact with the people who come in and out of the tap rooms every single day. And they came back to their old jobs. And that's great too, because you want some continuity as you reopen those. But it was such an important moment for us to be able to say, at least for those people in Fort Collins and in Asheville that uh, were impacted by this, that we were able to find rules and, and, and opportunities for everybody. It's such a great case study, too, of the power of having a role mix and the reality that, you know, human beings are not single faceted organisms. So you're not just the VP of finance. You might also be a great brewer. You might also be a great mentor, et cetera. And again, I, I just call out, you know, we're, we're again, we're fortunate because we have a few different businesses that we're in. Mm -hmm. We have this taproom business that we talked about being impacted, but we also have, you know, packaged beer that we sell in grocery stores. We also have draft beer that, you know, goes into bars and restaurants. And those things were all impacted in different ways. But for us, some of those businesses were doing better than normal. <laughs> right? Maybe and the grocery some, business uh, right. perks up a little bit in a pandemic. Yes. And some were obviously way off. And yeah. And I know we have lots of peers in the craft uh, beer industry. We also have, you know, there's lots of bars and restaurant owners who've been huge supporters of New Belgium and made us into what we are today through their support partnership, who unfortunately didn't have that same flexibility. If what you owned was a bar, you really yeah. struggled, mm -hmm. um, especially at the start of the pandemic. You couldn't be open by law. And so they didn't have that flexibility. And so it's not something that everyone would have had the opportunity to do. And it, we were just, we were fortunate that we were able to make that balance and other people had to make different decisions for their business and their coworkers. And given the lines of business they were in, that's totally understandable and and probably the, the only option that many of them had. Totally. So now we come to my favorite question in the plan for the show today. <laughs> there is a quote in the 2021 Fast Company article about New Belgium that reads, the company recently unveiled a new internal system of governance with a steering committee chaired by you that will focus on the company's human-powered business practices and consider new commitments that are in line with its ethos, such as new employee task forces and everything from carbon neutrality to DEI. So Rodney and I are massive governance nerds as well. Can you talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of your governance system and how it guides decision-making and agreement-making at the org, what you're thinking about on the horizons of that now? For sure. And and I think I'd start maybe a little bit about the why. Maybe not as big of a governance nerd as the two of you, but... <laughs> Who could be? Few people could are. Be, could be. <laughs> um, 
but I, I am I am a big believer in governance. And I and one of the things I realized, especially as we got into the acquisition of the of the Bell's Brewery in Michigan, is that we we got to this point as a company where if we didn't have the right governance in place, you could see how some of these business model decisions could erode pretty quickly if one or two people on the team switched out. Mm-hmm. And that's not what you want. And and for nearly 30 years, and frankly, even still today, Kim Jordan is involved in our business. I still talk to Kim regularly and, and get her opinion on things. When you have a founder-led business like that, all the decisions you know, ultimately are going up through a founder. And you also have a real confidence in the longevity of the founder as part of a business. And so those, mm-hmm. those parts of the company culture and ethos and, and business model are going to stay true because your founder's there and you're making sure those happen. And Larry Bell at Bell's was also, you know, a longtime founder, a, a little over 30 years. In fact, uh, that business is slightly older than New Belgium's business. And again, as the founder made sure the things that were important to him, many of which were similar to what was important in New Belgium, would stay in place. And I looked at that and I said, well, with Kim and, and Larry not being involved in the business day to day, how do we make sure that the things that were important to them are going to remain in place for the next 30 years. And sure, I may feel like, hey, I'm a great caretaker. And I talked earlier about, you know, I've, I view myself as a caretaker of these brands and a caretaker of the business. And I may feel like, hey, I'm a, I'm a great caretaker and everything's going to be fine while I'm here. But if you don't actually put the governance in place and build a little bit of that muscle tissue, especially as the business expands, and we have so many coworkers, as I said, in Asheville with our brewery there, and now in Michigan, we have a sales force all around the country you run the risk of those things kind of eroding a bit at the margins if you don't have some governance in place to not only hold what you have, but then also thinking about ways to make the company better and make the business model better and understand what's the next you know evolution of, of priorities within that. And so we do, as, as you mentioned, we do sort of have this human power business steering committee, which I chair, we meet monthly, and there's a bunch of task force groups that sit underneath that. So we have one around carbon neutral, we have some really aggressive goals and commitments around carbon neutrality by 2030 that's aligned with science-based targets in that space. And so we've got a group that's really focused on that. And in fact, last month's steering committee meeting was really their big update in terms of what are their priorities to close out in 2022, but then kind of what's their three-year roadmap of projects that we're going to pursue against scopes one, two, and three emissions. But we also have a co-worker well-being and culture task force, and that's really important right now, especially as we're coming out of the pandemic. But what is it that our co-workers need? How do we best address some of those things in a way that you know New Belgium's capable of doing? And, and how do we get after that? We have a community stakeholder team, and then we have a DEI co-worker council team as well as, as sort of subgroups as part of that. Because those are the things that sort of really hang together as part of that human power model. Because we're going back time about people, and we're going back time about our our communities as part of that. And so with those sort of monthly reporting requirements and then, you know, a couple of deep dives into each of those throughout the calendar year, we feel like we're really able to not only stay on top of the work and prioritize the work, but also have really good, robust leadership conversations around how do we evolve that work and how do we take it to the next level. That's nice. awesome. So the last thing we really wanted to ask you while we have you is this. Y'all have celebrated your 30th anniversary last year. Congratulations. It's amazing. How do you want to see New Belgium's practices evolve over the next 30 years? Like, we're big future of work nerds. What is the future of work there look like in your mind's eye? 
I'm going back to maybe that the earlier conversation around there's the human powered business model and there's the shareholder supremacy model. And I still think there's way too many people arguing if those are two ends of the spectrum Mm -hmm. where I firmly believe if you can properly enact or properly sort of follow the human power model, you actually can also have really good outcomes for your shareholders as part of that. And then the two aren't opposite ends of the spectrum. It's just a different, it's a different and better way to get to a similar outcome. And New Belgium has been doing that for 30 years and there's 9,000 plus craft breweries out there in the U.S. today. And you can effectively argue we're the largest of those 9,000. And so I think we're proof that that business model works, but we've proven it within a relatively small industry. Craft beer is, it may be a personal passion for a lot of people, although um, Aaron, I hear it's not your favorite beverage, which we should talk about before this is before this. I'm a of a cider man, but I'm willing to be open-minded. <laughs> we're we're going to get you converted, but we, you know, it's a relatively small industry. I think we punch above our weight in terms of advocacy and and people knowing who we are from a business model perspective. But we are an incredible case study around how you can take this business model and how you can still be you can be a successful business while while thinking about running your business. So as I looked at the next 30 years, something that's important to me is, well, how do we think about continuing to advocate and show others that this business model is the right way to think about running a business and take all of that sort of respect that exists for what New Belgium does, maybe within the craft beer industry or within the beverage alcohol industry and, and continue to use our voice to share that success and share those ideas and share that different way of operating a business across more industries and get more people to think about changing the way they operate their business. But I also think to do that, one of the things we do talk about a lot internally is it's really helpful for us to continue to be successful as a business. doesn't mean we have to be the biggest or the fastest growing or the most profitable. We don't have to do all those things, but we do have to, we do have to be showing ourselves to be a successful business on maybe more traditional commercial terms as well mm-hmm. so that it, adds even more credibility to the conversation that that when you take this human powered model and you put people in community at the center of it, you can still drive those business outcomes. And I do think as we continue to do that over the next 30 years, we'll have this opportunity, I think, to have a louder voice and to change more people's minds about the way that they can govern and operate their businesses. I love that. I feel like there's there's nothing more important once you have some of this figured out and you've sampled what work can be like when you don't hate being there. There's nothing more important than sharing that. So it's really exciting to to hear that. And frankly, if everybody that picked up a beer could also pick up an idea or two about how the world could be different at work, that would be be a pretty good outcome. We just need you to pick up more beers, Aaron. (laughs) I'm into it. Um, That seems like uh, a pretty good place to draw things to a close, me me having a beer. Uh, So Steve, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work with New Belgium? Probably the best place to go is just to our website. You can go to newbelgium.com. You can read all about our world-class beers. You can read about uh, Fat Tire as the first certified carbon neutral beer in the U.S. And uh, just learn a little more about our business model and our history. Nice. That's awesome. Steve, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to chat. 
A quick tip of the hat, as always, to Taylor Marvin for making the three of us sound good today. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. <laughs>